You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. I want to say thank you for joining me for tonight's live stream. I am excited to bring you this very important and unique discussion tonight with Dr. Carl Payne. Dr. Payne is the author of the book, Spiritual Warfare, and we are going to be talking about the topic of what demonic oppression often looks like in the life of the Christian. And um, I'll be mentioning this book throughout our stream tonight, and uh, hopefully Bob can get it up there so you can get connected with Dr. Payne's book on Amazon and make sure you get the latest edition that just came out. It has a cover that looks like this. So make sure you get that. And, you know, this is a topic that I get inquiries about with some frequency. So I'm hoping that this conversation tonight will help uh, equip you to think things through in a biblical way. Now, this conversation tonight was kind of sparked because a few months ago, I did a live stream about how witchcraft is becoming increasingly increasingly normalized in our society and some of my thoughts and concerns about that. I received quite a bit of feedback from uh, listeners asking if I could do more content on themes related to the spirit realm, trying to do it in a theologically responsible way, a biblically grounded way, but also acknowledging that the spirit realm is real and trying to help people think that through. So tonight's conversation is sort of a follow-up to that topic, and um, I'm going to bring Dr. Payne on in just a moment, but before I do, I want to make a few comments because I want to say up front that I know that some of you who are going to listen to this podcast or watch this stream uh, might feel frustrated (laughs) that we're even talking about the topic of deliverance or casting out of demons or spiritual warfare, and that's okay. Um, it's, it's okay if it's a new topic for you, or if, if you're feeling concerned or frustrated, all I ask is that you hear us out and, um, consider reading Dr. Payne's book. You might be pleasantly surprised as I was when I first read it a few years ago. Now, others of you are going to be concerned that we aren't going far enough in talking about spiritual warfare, maybe in some of the ways that you have been taught to discuss that topic. And that's also okay. Um, Again, all I ask is that you hear us out, maybe read Dr. Payne's book and weigh out the matter, test all things in the spirit of 1 Thessalonians 5. So in the summer of 2014, I read Uh, the previous edition of Dr. Payne's book, Spiritual Warfare, for the first time. And that reading that book was the beginning of a journey that really opened my eyes to a lot of questions and issues that, quite frankly, I hadn't previously considered. Even though I had spent pretty much all of my 20s in seminary and had worked professionally in the realm of theology and apologetics, Um, for quite a long time, Um, (coughs) I hadn't given much thought 
to the issues related to spiritual warfare and angels and demons and the spirit realm, I hadn't really given much thought to what does demonic oppression look like? Um, how does the enemy attack Christians? What, what does that often um, come in the appearance of? And, and what are some of the most common attacks? And Dr. Payne's book really opened my eyes to thinking about those things and sending me back to the scriptures uh, to, to study the scriptures more deeply on this issue. So Dr. Payne's book, I have found to be a balanced and biblical treatment of the matter. Um, his new edition has pages and pages of endorsements, one of which is my former professor at Talbot, uh, Dr. Clint Arnold, uh, who has also done some work in the field of spiritual warfare um, in the academic realm. So um, lots to consider there. So with all of that, I want to introduce our guest, Dr. Carl Payne. Welcome, Dr. Payne. Krista, it's good to be with you. Well, it's an honor to finally meet you. And um, we had a, a short phone conversation a few weeks ago. And um, this is just sort of uh, continuing the discussion. I'm just so honored to meet you. Your, your book was tremendously helpful to me. And I'm excited to be able to share it with others. Um, maybe let's just start by letting people get to know you a little bit more of about yourself, what you do in ministry, and how you got into deliverance ministry, because it wasn't really something I think that you went after and, and pursued. It was more of a ministry that found you. Yeah, I would say we could probably make it even a little little tighter than that. I was, I was uh, fairly nervous about this type of thing because my only experience with it, as I explained in the book, was really quite frightening. And uh, uh, I, I attended uh, Multnomah School of the Bible, which very solid school, Western Seminary, I consider very solid school, headquartered in Portland, although I, I took some classes down in Phoenix, too, over the years. Um, most of the time, Krista, we were just told to ignore the subject, that, uh, that people who are serious about their Christianity and their walk with God uh, understand that they're protected by Jesus from anything supernatural and that the only people typically that get involved with this are are people who are really more feelings oriented than fact oriented and sometimes trying to draw attention to themselves and, uh, you know, some theme and variation of that. And that, you know, as long as you, uh, uh, stick in the scripture and you pray and memorize scripture, you'll find that your flesh is about as challenging as anything you're going to need to have to figure out how to work with anyway. So don't waste your time on the other. So that was, uh, that was just pretty much, I guess you would say, what I walked out of a couple of good schools with. Your your seminary training sounds very similar to what I experienced too at Talbot. Well, and, 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 yeah, Krista, most 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 of my colleagues, just like you're saying, but uh, uh, a number of the seminaries and schools that 30 years ago would be saying to me, "Don't don't even touch this. Stay away from this. People that get into this are just viewed as." Uh, uh, kooks. I remember the pre president of my seminary who became a, a, a mentor and a friend, Earl Rodmacher, when he first found out in 82 that I began working with this, he uh, 
he just said, Carl, get away from this. Anyone who gets involved in this, you know, gets hurt. And uh, I said, gets involved in what? I mean, I, I mean, this, this is real. And, uh, you know, I tell a little story in the Rodmacher, uh, you know, years later, about 1991, where he walked up to me and said, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, this stuff is really very real. But I was going to say, Chris, there's a number of the schools and seminaries that before I would say, leave it alone. I've had invitations to go to a number of them and say, well, you talk to our faculty students and just say, what is this stuff really about? Because it's inundating us now, as you said earlier, on the TV, the the media, you, you mentioned you can't get away from it. Yeah. And at least some of the Christians are starting to wake up. The bottom line to your question was, in 1982, one of our parishioners came over to my house. I write a little bit about this in the book. And uh, I knew this person as someone that had been out on ministry teams. Uh, both her parents have been vocational Christian workers. I didn't have any question. Her dad was the moderator of the board of our church, the elder board uh, moderator. And uh, she came over one day, and uh, that wasn't unusual. But uh, she, at times, she had a hang-up with speed. You know, sometimes they call it meth. And it was just crazy to me because she would walk with God. She would be on ministry team. She was a joy to be with. And then sometimes she would come over to my house and say, I have failed God and probably ought to die because I'm just, you know, I've failed my parents. I failed God. And I would look at her and her eyes were all, you know, very different. And I would just sit down and talk to her about the sufficiency of Christ. I would take her back to scripture. We would spend an hour going through Bible verses and praying. And she would say, okay, I, I think I've got it. And God forgives me. I'm not a failure. I'm valuable because of him. And it might be six months later and she'd come over. And at any rate, on one of these exchanges, I, I said to her almost as a lark, I don't mean trying to be funny. Just, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't recognize what was going on. Uh, my assessment was she was a weak-willed Christian. I've run into lots of them. Uh, you kind of blend in with the crowd that you're with because you don't want to take hits. So, you know, whatever, whatever you, you represent, whatever it is to be sure that you're popular and people like you. And, uh, and if I just said to her on a lark, she was in the front room. My wife was cross-stitching on the couch. And I said, could I read a couple of Bible verses to you? And she said, Sure. And I started reading 1 John 4, 1 through 6, and before I got through them, saliva started drooling out of her mouth, and she went off the chair, a rocking chair she was sitting in, and she curled all up kind of fetal, and, and her fingers started contorting, and her eyes rolled back in the back of her head, and I said, what's your name? And it was a man's voice that was not her name. And I just looked at my wife and my wife looked at me and said, what in the world is going on? This cannot happen. At least it's not supposed to happen with someone that reads the Bible that goes out on mission teams with you and such. And uh, Krista, the short version is I called over several pastors in the area. I called over most of our elders at the time and uh, said, does anybody know what's going on? And that poor young lady would call me an F and this, and Jesus was an F and that. And I mean, it was just vulgar and foul and the same person that wouldn't talk that way. I mean, this was, you know, a high school senior, I think that most youth pastors would have said, you know, she has her ups and downs, but she's solid and uh, very involved in ministry and such. And, and uh, 
we just got insulted, Krista, for the whole night. And uh, it was very evident none of us knew what we were doing. So her dad, uh, who I said had been a vocational Christian leader, was connected with somebody up in British Columbia, who I eventually met and uh, spent some time with. But he was a, a, a missionary in, in mainland China until Mao kicked him out in 48. Then he went to Indonesia for 18 years. Then he pastored White Rock, British Columbia, and George Bush for another 30 years. And he said, son, what do they tell you about spiritual warfare in college and seminary these days? And I said, to ignore it. And he said, well, I'm going to give you an education. So the real situation was someone that came into my front room, who I considered a friend, you know, part of the family was our friend and involved in leadership in our church, uh, forced me to either say this can't happen and this isn't real because what I learned at school is sacrosanct and the paradigm I learned about warfare is I, I must have come from Moses and through Noah and eventually through Jesus and to me or or maybe I had to say my learning was at least incomplete. And so I started trying to find out out of necessity, what in the world do you do when this happens to, as a pastor to you and the stand on the Bible, preach the scripture, pray, will take care of everything. And it doesn't. Uh, I think that's a great setup because that is so similar to my journey on this issue as well as I was always taught you know, pray, read your Bible, you have the Holy Spirit, you're a Christian. And then I found myself in a situation where that there was data <laughs> that it was like, okay, wait a minute here, Th this, I don't have a category for this. Now, what you're giving is kind of an extreme example of, you know, a voice change and, and that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. it doesn't always show up like that, but it usually doesn't show up like yeah, that. Yeah. You just but, asked me what, what, what started the journey and it was something yeah, that, that would definitely odd, get your attention. It was odd enough that it got my attention. Yeah. System. That's, that's the way to say it. And, yeah. you know, um, I think that the, the common way that, in the vernacular of, that we hear in a lot of evangelical spaces is that, you know, Christians can't have a demon, you know, maybe they can be oppressed by demons, but that's often even not really defined as to what that's supposed to look like. So I think that it would be important for us to kind of understand your thoughts on, you know, how, how might demons actually affect Christians. Like okay. what, yeah. What, how does that work? Okay. Will you pull me back in anytime you want okay. this is for you and hopefully for your listeners. And yeah. I want it to be as clear and clean as it can be. So if, if I miss on any of it, don't be afraid to pull me back in. Uh, I would say that what I have witnessed over the last 40 years and, and I've, I have spoke across the country, out of the country, uh, Butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, uh, seminaries, Bible schools, churches, you name it, is that most of us deal with exactly what I was dealing with back in the 70s and 80s, and that's cliches. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd heard verbiage, and I just assumed that the verbiage took care of everything, kind of virtucratically. I, I had heard that there's oppression, and, and that means that uh, you can be bothered somehow by demons. It was never really explained how, and I'll, I'll explain that while we're going, how that usually works. But there was oppression and that Christians could be oppressed. And then there was possession and 
that meant that a demon owned a person and uh, kind of like the Gadarene demoniac, you know, in Matthew 8. Right. And uh, I hadn't seen in young life or campus crusade for Christ or, you know, my first, you know, years as a youth pastor, I hadn't seen anybody that howls at the moon and runs around buck naked and breaks chains and that kind of thing. So I just figured, well, school's right. I'm not going to have to mess with that. So, and the oppression, uh, the, the, the idea I got was it's just an occasional goofy thought that you get. And so if you get a goofy thought, you just blow it off and keep walking and, and right. you'll be just fine. So it was basically this paradigm of oppression, which meant, you know, it's an irritation, but it doesn't, doesn't mean much. And there's possession, and that's a person that's just flat out of their mind. And as long as, uh, you know, you're walking with Jesus, you don't have to worry about the first. And and, uh, and the second isn't even a possibility. So, you know, it's not really worth your time. Uh, spend your time discipling. Spend your time in Bible study praying. Spend your time in evangelism. And that's a better use of your time than worrying about something that, you know, only kind of freaky, fanatical people get involved with in any way. So it's just a... Yeah, don't, 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 don't be guilty by association of people thinking that you're silly. I, I mentioned Dr. Rob Mocker earlier, and I don't, I don't usually mention his name too much in conferences, but I remember when Rob Mocker said to me, he said, you've established yourself as a very, very good Bible teacher. I said, well, thank you. Coming from you, that means a lot. And he said, you could undermine everything with this because people are so afraid of this subject. And so just leave it alone. Mm-hmm. And that, that was kind of his motivation wasn't to, to, to scare me. It was to protect me. Sure. So when you, when you say Christians and how, how, what does it mean? I would say this, that the word demonizomenos is a participle that's used, demonizomai. You see a number of places, but where I like to bring it up, and, and uh, intro it is in the book of Ephesians, because there's chapter four, uh, there's no question that Paul is writing to believers. Uh, anybody that wants to argue that contextually that book is written to non-Christians, you're going to lose that argument. In chapter 4, 26, 25, 26, 27, he, he talks about sin and how we're to deal quickly with it. We're not to allow the sun to go down on it, which again, he is writing that to believers. It would make no sense admonishing non-Christians to deal quickly with your sin. Verse 26, why? Because you do not want to give Tatas is the Greek word there. If you've spent your time in seminary, you probably know that already, and maybe some of your listeners do. Probably most don't. But it was a military term that uh, talked about giving away degrees of control. Uh, It was used literally, not figuratively, and the etymology meant to, to give away a place, a space, a territory, a ground of control. The idea with Paul was that you're, you're, you're camped out on a mountain and you own it and an enemy comes up and throws your army off the mountain and now they control that mountaintop until someone stronger than them kicks them off the mountain. And it's very clear when he says in verse 26 to believers, deal quickly, don't let the sun go down on your sin. Why? You do not want to give, and the translation will say a foothold, a handhold, an opportunity, uh, you could say literally a place, a space, or a territory of control. And he says to who? To the devil. So when I look at that, and I'm thinking to myself, most of my instruction was if you're a believer, you don't have to worry about any of this. Well, I'm thinking, well, Paul is concerned enough about it that he tells believers, quit playing games with your sin. Deal quickly with it. Don't let it stack up. 
because you can potentially give away degrees of control, places, spaces, or territories of control to the devil. So you say, what does that have to do with the paradigm we're talking about? I will typically say that I don't believe after my work with this, that when someone says demons can own a person, I don't think they own anything. I think demons are squatters. I think demons are just part of God's creation. There's one creator. That's Jesus Christ, according to John 1, 1 through 3. That's Jesus Christ, according to Colossians 1, 15 to 17. That's Jesus Christ, according to the first chapter of the book of the Hebrews. So if you say there's one creator, that's God. Everything else that exists apart from him, John says nothing exists apart from him. Or Paul says everything was created by him, for him, through him, to him, etc. So demons or the devil are simply part of his created order. They can be more powerful, some more, some less, but they're still part of his creation. So you have one creator, and the creator trumps any and all of his creation. So when someone says, are you talking about a loser? And, and that's, I mean that to sound disrespectful. Demons are losers. They made the wrong choice. They followed the wrong one. And say that somehow a Christian or a non-Christian has to worry about a demon becoming their owner. I would say demons are not capable of being owners. They are capable of holding degrees of control. And the longer a person, Christian or non-Christian, plays games with them, the more control they can give up. But as far as ownership, there's only one owner. That's the creator. So when you talk about oppression, you're talking about a degree of control that's not very concerning. Again, it's that occasional thought. Maybe it's the uh, Jesus doesn't love you. Or maybe it's uh, why doesn't he answer your prayers if he loves you? Or if Jesus really loved you, why would he let you go through this? Or your prayers bounce off the ceiling. Or why are you studying your Bible? You don't get anything out of it anyway. Or you're fat and ugly, and you're always by yourself. I mean, it's just something demeaning. It's something that occasionally, I, Paul likens it to a fiery arrow in Ephesians 6.16. Uh, the Apostle John in, in Revelation 12, 10, 11 likens it to being accused day and night. He says 24-7 that the enemy accuses the brethren. And, and so when someone says, what is it like? Well, it's like having someone shoot an arrow at you and it burns and it hurts. It's mental most of the time. Sometimes you see in Luke chapter 13 where there was a physical involvement with a daughter of Israel, a daughter of Abraham, actually is what it says. And, and, uh, and the Galatians 3, 7 talks about if, we, if, we, if we're in the true faith, we're children of Abraham. So she was a true believer. And, and yet she was bent over by a spirit. Or you see in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul, anyone wants to argue he wasn't a believer in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, you're going to look silly trying to do that. And he says, an angel from Satan was sent to buffet me. If it's going to buffet him, it clearly was touching him in a way that he wanted to stop. He says, I asked three times that this would stop. And God says, my grace is sufficient. You know, I'm allowing something so that you don't boast because of a, a trip he'd taken apparently up to a third heaven, he says. And to keep you from exalting yourself, th this will keep your feet on the ground. But my point would be, uh, what is it? Well, it's occasional. Uh, it's, it's light. The oppression, it's not that big a deal all the way to where you could say somebody like the gathering demoniac, where you would say that cat is just out of his mind. I mean, he thinks he's seeing things he's not seeing. He's talking to things that aren't there. 
Uh, he's got all of this strength. Still doesn't make Satan his owner, but it means he is in so deep with this thing that as far as his self-will, someone might say, does he have it? And I would argue, yes, he still does. And I would say as Christians, when Christians say to me, the devil made me do that, almost the old Flip Wilson line is a joke. I go, that's just not true. Demons can tell you what to do, but they can't make you do anything you're not willing to do. Let me give you one more verse to tie in with this. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 4, to me, are always instructive, very instructive. And there are verses that get skipped a lot of times by people that want to just be absolutely certain that as a Christian, I don't have to worry about any of this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, and remember, 2 Corinthians is a book where he's already said in chapter 2, verse 11, we're not unaware of Satan and his methods or his schemes. Uh, they came out of a Greco-Roman mystery religions. They were very familiar with it. In chapter 11, he says, I'm concerned for you. Put up with me. And uh, he says, I was the one that introduced you to Christ, which we find that out in the book of 1 Corinthians as well. And then he says, I'm concerned for you, least as the serpent deceived Eve in her mind. You're being deceived. And, well, how are they being deceived? He says, you talk about a Jesus other than the one I preached to you. You're now involved with spirits other than the one you received, which would have been the Holy Spirit, and you're promoting a gospel that I never preached to you. And then you don't even fight back. It's, it's you know, you're passive about it. I, what, what are you doing? And I have said, where was the battle? Well, it's, he says it was in the mind with what group of people clearly talking to Christians how severe was it? Well, it was enough that he still recognizes them as brethren, so he still calls, you know, they're still Christians. He's identifying them as believers. But he's saying, you have become so confused that mentally you have walked away from the, and it's interesting because he says you are walking in purity in your faith. What happened? So there were people he'd led to Christ, they're walking in purity, and yet he says you're being deceived in your mind just like he was to where you've got a different Jesus, a different gospel, and you're entertaining spirits other than the one you'd receive, and you don't fight back, what are you doing? And their response, Krista, was verses 13 to 15. Well, they told us they were teachers of righteousness, and his response is their boss, i.e. Satan, parades himself as an angel of light. Why does it surprise you that his emissaries wouldn't promote themselves as teachers of righteousness or apostles, etc.? So when someone says, how deep can you get in, even as a Christian, I would say, well, someone's saying that I was led to Christ by Paul. I've been walking in purity in my faith. And yet somehow this mental war goes on. I am bombarded enough that I am now getting involved with a different Jesus, different gospel and different spirits. I would call that fairly severe. And I would certainly call it more than, oh, that's just something trite. So just ignore it and walk on. Uh, so the oppression, not difficult to deal with. I can give you specifics. We get there. We, yeah. that when, it, when it becomes more severe, it's still not that difficult to deal with as long as you know what you're dealing with. What I found out over the years was that most leaders like me have not been taught how to recognize it, much less how to respond to it. And so how do you teach something you don't know anything about and then especially if people think that you as the pastor or ministry leader, you're supposed to be the one that they're going to dial into to help. Well, if they don't think it's important, why should I think it's important? Uh, so we just end up ignoring something and having people who, because of their relationship with Christ, are on the inside of the Christian faith. 
But Krista, they feel like they're on the outside, always looking in. It just doesn't work for me. I don't understand. But you talk about joy in Jesus. And for me, I hold on to the knot on the rope. And I hope he'll come back sooner than later. And if I talk about it, I'll just be made fun of anyway. If anyone, you know, if I'm worried about people isolating me and thinking I'm crazy, if I bring this up, man, it will remove any doubt. So it's just easier to suffer in silence and assume that I'm just doing something wrong. But what's new about that? Because I follow lots of things up. So, yeah, I, I want you brought up so, several points that I want to highlight there because they were so important. I think one of the things that I really appreciate about your book is um, talking about these condemning thoughts, you know, and that that is often how the demonic oppression can show up, you know, for many of us. And, um, you know, I want to get a little bit more into that in, in a minute, but um, also I appreciate the, the balance that you bring of not every problem has a demonic cause. Sure. And um, I really appreciated the fact that you said some problems need a medical doctor, Some problems you need to go probably seek out some counseling and some therapy, but there are some problems that it will be very hard to make meaningful progress in overcoming them. If you don't um, begin to understand that they, they have a, a, that you're getting those thoughts or having those problems at, at a demonic root, like, and that sometimes that takes even the form of a physical problem, like in, in my own life. And I don't share this a ton publicly, but I do occasionally. And in my own life, what happened was that I suffered from a a particular mental disorder for 30 years. And I did, you know, and I, I, I'm not saying that every mental disorder is a demonic problem, but in my life, that was the root of it. And prior to that, I went to doctors and I was on medication. I went to therapy every week. I had a psychiatrist. I bless all those people who work in the medical field. I'm grateful for those people that helped to um, counsel me and, and they helped to um, help me keep my family together. They helped me keep my job. And I bless all of that. And I'm so grateful. I want to encourage everybody, if you're struggling, get medical interventions, do it, you know, do those things, explore those avenues. But sometimes, occasionally, there can be a demonic component to a physical problem or a mental problem that can only be ultimately resolved, um, you know, by addressing the demonic issue. The woman of the, with the bent back in Luke 13, Jesus heals her by casting out a spirit. Occasionally physical problems do have a demonic root. Again, not all physical problems, but I think that this is part of the conversation that we're not having in some churches in America, in particular in the West, to even consider that, that demons could play a role in negative thoughts, uh, physical problems, and, and that sort of thing. It's just kind of not on our radar, would you say? Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, you've 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 said a mouthful, sister, and you've caught a lot of a lot of very relevant things. Uh, you know, earlier when I said that I've, I'm being invited back now after almost 40 years of working with this to some of the same places that earlier we're going. We don't want to touch that or talk about that. Uh, I would say yes. I would say the overwhelming majority of the time, it's mental. The attacks are mental. But I have certainly worked with more than my share, too, where they were physical. It can be both. And as to your first point, I, I mean, there's a reason that Chapter 4 for mine is, how do you identify and work with struggles with the world? The Bible says you're going to have to. Chapter 5, how do you work with, identify struggles from the flesh? The Bible says you're going to have to. Chapter six, how do you work with, identify struggles with the supernatural, the demonic Bible says you're going to have to. And the notion that I can say, well, I like chapters four and five, but I'll ignore six because I'm okay with the world and the flesh. I go, well, as long as you're never attacked by demons, I guess you can feel pretty safe. Much like the circles I still am in theologically, but uh, that I came out of, everything is the flesh. I go, as long as you don't get attacked through the world or by demons, I guess, by golly, you're going to do just fine. But what guarantee do you have when the Bible says there's a, a, a triad, an infernal triad called world, flesh, and devil is identified, we're to learn how to recognize and respond to it. When you, when you either intimidate, intimate that you, as long as you're good with one, you know, you'll ignore the other, I say then you're going to be guessing and getting beat up. So when, when, when somebody says, is everything, everything demons? No, actually demons represent one third of that triad. I regularly refer people to counselors. I regularly refer people to physicians. Um, sometimes it's better that they have been to a good counselor and they have been to a good physician because then when they come see me, they'll say, okay, I have checked out the stuff that's supposed to be the normal stuff. And we're getting nowhere. And is there a possibility that there's something else? And I say, well, sure, there's a possibility there's something else. I have had, I have, I have listened to medical people, counselors, and MDs uh, plead that preachers who do probably eighty percent of the counseling, since you know, why don't you stick to your business and just preach from the Bible and allow us to handle the medical stuff? Because that's what we're trained to do. I would say, except both of us know in your training. You may be a theist even, but your training, uh, the assumption is naturalism, and you no more regard God as real as you do the devil as real, or demons as real as you do angels as real, and, and which for as a non-Christian naturalist makes perfect sense to me. Why would they, why would they look for problems that, that from something they don't think even exists? The, the ones I've kind of cocked my head at a little bit are the people that say, I'm a Christian, I'm a theist. And yet they don't want to ever look at the stuff that the New Testament talks about as far as supernatural challenges. So I have no problem referring people out and do. Uh, the, what I plead in that book is I say, isn't it about time if counselors want me to refer people to them because what I do doesn't touch what they're living with, how about they admit the same thing that they have a percentage of their of their counselees that what they're dealing with and they approach it as a naturalist, even if they're a Christian, most of the time, it isn't touching them. I, I now have regularly, I am regularly in, in talk with MDs and counselors who will say, you know what? There's something else out there. We've treated this physiologically. 
uh, it's, we're getting nowhere. We've treated this psychologically. We're getting nowhere. But their problems are real. And maybe what you're talking about, maybe there is something there. Can we talk about that? And, yeah. and I'm not surprised at all, Krista, when I do that. I tell you, I enjoy speaking at conferences. And, and I'm not surprised at all when I'll have people before or after contact me and say, listen, I'm a counselor. I've worked with, with counselors that are missionaries out of the country, many of them here in country, doctors, the same thing. Uh, I, I have worked with more missionaries and, and, and pastors than the Christians would ever believe. They just wouldn't believe it because they want to believe that that gathering demoniac represents somebody so isolated. And that's the only one that's really dealing with demons that they've never learned how to recognize. Well, you understand that that was an extreme. I mean, no one's going to yeah. miss that one, but, but so, so what do you say? You say, yes, check the others. I, 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 in my book, ask people, please check the others. Uh, check them first. If there's a, yeah. if someone, if someone says I've been to a good counselor and man, my issues being dealt with, I'm great. You don't need to talk to me. I usually catch them on the other end. As I said, after they're suicidal oftentimes. Well, and, and that's, that's the thing is that when it's not, when conventional things aren't working to me, that's can be a sign that maybe a demonic issue is, sure. is in play. Like, you know, you're, you're dealing, you're, you're talking to a person and they've been, you know, they've been on all the conventional medications, nothing's helping or they've been to all these doctors and the tests are constantly inconclusive. Um, that's when I start wondering, Hmm, I wonder if something else is going on here. Well, see, here's your alternative. And I just got tired of this between you and me and whoever's listening. I got tired of, we have treated this Christian's issues uh, physiologically, not helping. We've treated them psychologically, not helping. Therefore, they're either not really a Christian, and they've just learned the lingo, but they don't really love God, so they don't have his protection. Or they're Christians, but they're making all of this up because somehow they're wanting attention, they get gratification from it, etc. In other words, instead of me as the, as the one they're looking to for help saying, maybe my training was inadequate and I need to learn more, it's just a lot easier to say, well, you're, you're not a Christian, obviously, because I don't recognize your experience, or you're making this up. Why are you making this up? Let's talk about that, which just changes the field, the, the, the goalpost altogether. But basically, it's attacking the one who's come to you for help because I do not relate to their experience. And that's why I said you'll have Christians in every church of any size who say, I understand the gospel. I have responded to the gospel. I love Jesus. But in my mind, you see me in the building, but in my mind, I'm on the outside of the church looking in, and I have decided that apparently I have committed an unforgivable sin or I blaspheme God, or there's something that has put a wedge between me and God. It's not surmountable. Uh, I would not kill myself because I don't think that would be a right thing to do, but I just don't, I just don't, uh, I just hang on to the rope because there's nothing here for me. And again, you say, why don't I talk to other people about my walk with Jesus? Cause I feel like such a failure in my walk with Jesus. How do I put a cheesy smile on my face and tell people you need what I've got 
when I feel like I'm always getting kicked down to the ground anyway. So do I attack the person who says they're a believer and I have no reason to assume they're not because they check all the boxes just like any of my seminary. I've taught seminary classes. I've taught undergraduate Bible school classes. If they check the boxes, I don't assume right away, well, you're just lying. I may explore it if I get, you know, questions and answers that don't seem to make sense. But when it, you know, they check the boxes and they, they, they're genuine about their faith and their understanding how they came to Christ, what it means as anyone else. But then they start talking about this war in their mind most of the time that just doesn't make sense. Do I attack them, which is what happens too often, or do I say, maybe I need to find like the Baptist missionary that I found that had spent 60 years working with this and say, Pastor Birch, I need an education because I sure didn't get one in my schooling. Yeah, and I wish that there was more space to have those kinds of conversations um, in our seminaries and in, in our churches. Because I think that there's, there's a couple of gals on the stream here that um, I was involved in, in praying for them as part of their journey. And both of them um, got, in their cases, physical healing and also um, dealing with a lot of condemning thoughts. And uh, through deliverance ministry, that was the case in my situation. Um, deliverance ministry was, I mean, I had gone to church my whole life. I was, I I was serious about my faith. I wanted to be a missionary. I was trying so hard to live a Christian life, but I couldn't escape. I, I struggled with a, a deep struggle of suicidal thoughts for three decades, starting when I was 15 years old. And when I went through deliverance and, and I had immediate, the next day I woke up for the first time and usually the routine was that when I would wake up in the morning, the almost to the first thought I would have would be a suicidal thought. And that was, I woke up that next day. I knew something was different because I didn't have that thought yeah. and it set me free, but I don't feel like it's even a conversation that we can have in the church about, about these types of thoughts. Well, I, th I think, I think that is to the demise of people who, whose experience is not what mine is. And I, again, I don't want to admit that maybe I need to learn more because it's just easier for me to say uh, any of these people that are talking about this again, they're feel good, shallow people, why they certainly don't read good theology and they must not be memorizing scripture or praying. So it's just easier to blow them off. And again, either they're making this up or they're not really a Christian. There's something because it couldn't be that, it's that, that I've, I've missed something. I, I reached a point, Krista, and I'll tell you what, you, you would figure I'd probably have to by now because I've been at this a long time. And uh, I reached a point where I found that most of the cliches that I had tossed at me from people who were either very sincere and trying to protect me, uh, uh, you know, call, don't, don't get near this, you'll get hurt, or people that have never been involved with any of this, but like to write and talk and speak as if they, you know, very familiar with it. it. It takes about 60 seconds to find out how true that is. And, and, and yet they speak so almost arrogantly sometimes. I just reached a point where I say, you know what? We are both going to stand before the Bema seat of Christ. 
according to 2 Corinthians 5, 10, 11, we're going to give an account for everything we've done in our life, whether good or bad. According to 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, that same Bema seat, we're going to give an account for every motive for the deeds we did. And according to Matthew 12, 36 and 37, we're going to give an account for every word we speak. So I figure if I'm going to give an account to God for my deeds, for my speech, and for the motivation of both, I will be more concerned about what I think he is telling me than I am going to be concerned about people who, uh, I'll sound cruel here, I suppose, but that's, that's the way I've seen it too often. There are people who sit up in the stands with a clipboard in their hand and a pencil in their ear, and they are experts on everything about football, but they have never been on the field in their life. They would never allow someone to hit them because you might get hurt. So everything is a theoretical game to them. And I just get very weary of that. I, I was a chaplain for the Seahawks for 21 seasons. I've been around more football than most people, the good and the bad. I've seen, I've, I've seen everything you would typically see. And when you hear the people who you know don't have a clue that they're talking about, but they do programs and they do different things, you just want to, I just, after a while, I wouldn't say anything. Uh, it's like, you know more about what goes on in a locker room than I do when I'm in the locker room and you're not. And I've just kind of seen some of the people who are so emotionally wound up trying to, to, to belittle, trying to, if someone wanted to talk about this, discourage them from that. I go, why? Why? Well, it's just because everyone knows. Well, who's everyone? Well, as we've all been taught, well, maybe you've been incorrectly taught. In other words, there's so much of that. I just say either put it on the table because you know what you're talking about or do everybody a favor and keep your mouth shut because you don't know what you're talking about. Ask some good questions and see where it goes. When we look at other areas, if somebody said, I know you have a zeal for sharing the gospel, but sometimes I think, you know, you miss a couple of things. Well, then that's great. Teach me. Uh, you know, I, I believe that in Christ, I am very secure. I believe Rome, there's so many verses. This is not what this is about, but you know, Romans 8, 38, 35 to 39 is as clear to me as it gets 35. Who can separate us from God's love in Christ? 39. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from God's love in Christ. If someone was telling me how they have lost their salvation and got it back 10 or 15 ways, I would say, boy, we need to talk about that and we need to take it to scripture. And hopefully you can be a help by helping people understand what's true from scripture. When you have people that hit this topic and they want to talk about cliches and what they've heard, and yet they feel confident enough about that, that they discourage people from asking questions, from reading, I just say shame on you. If you're that clear and you're, and you're that good in what you know and believe, why would they still have questions? Obviously, there's something going on that they need. Let them, let them explore. Let them, I'm not talking about stepping into the occult. I'm not talking about doing stupid things. I'm saying let them read some of the books from Christians that are every bit as dialed in as you are. Erwin Lutzer is dialed in. He knows this is real. Chuck Swindoll is dialed in. He knows this is real. Uh, in other words, the, the impression I was given, Krista, was that it's only wackos that talk about this. Yeah. And Mark Bubeck was not a wacko. Fred Dickinson is not a wacko. You start going through, I don't think I'm a wacko. And, and you know, you start working through this and you go, well, I love the Lord. They're evangelical, but they have a different take on this. Instead of telling people, don't you read that book? 
I, I read an introduction to a book from one of the people. I'm not going to name them. Uh, I don't even actually want to send people to their book, but, uh, but you know, from, from a, a position where this is just all nonsense and the way they start their book out is they say, uh, we deal, uh, we deal with a balanced view on warfare. And then they explain the balanced view is this. If you don't believe in God, you're not a theist and you're an extremist because there is a God. But if you're a Christian who thinks that you can be involved with demons, that makes you an extremist on the other side. So if you define an extremist as someone who either rejects the whole idea of God being real, or a Christian who thinks that you can actually be involved with, with demons, then I guess the perfect middle ground must be your position. But the problem, the problem is there are too many Christians for too many years, too many pastors, too many missionaries, too many church fathers. How about that? I've got 38 volumes of the church fathers. I started reading the church fathers when I was 19. Many pastors even today go, what are they? You know, but there's some of the same ones that speak, you know, so authoritative. And I, I just think, my goodness, my friend, this has been talked about for so long. Why don't you start reading a few of those people that you say, uh, Erwin Lutzer, I'll say again, and Chuck Swindoll, they're as, they're as solid as anybody in the Christian faith. And it's, why, why not see what, why would they say they're right about so many things, but they're just whacked out on that? I don't believe that. Find out what they're saying. Yeah. And that's why I really appreciate your book and just how biblical it is. You have a line in the book where you say, look, where the Bible speaks to this, I will speak. And where the Bible does not speak to this, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to speak to that. And it, it, that is a, a posture that has been very helpful to me. And, and to be sure there's, there's a lot of deliverance ministries out there. I mean, right now there, it feels like there's a proliferation of them, but I think that some of them go down a path of that becomes you, you start getting involved in a lot of extra biblical practices. And I really appreciate just how biblically grounded your approach is. I want to just talk about like one thing, yes, and that is your, your use of the concept of ground rules, because I think that um, the idea of demons, what people think in their minds of casting out of demons is you're going to experience in the, in the prayer session, a lot of screaming and antics and vomiting and falling on the ground and all of this kind of thing. But there's a concept in your book of talking about ground rules that I think is very important because our, the pictures in our mind are very Hollywood, but we kind of have to, in most cases that that's not how it shows up. Yeah. Well, great, great comments again. And uh, it's clear that you're familiar with the material in the book, and I appreciate that uh, very much, uh, because you're right. Uh, I mean, I will say if the Bible speaks to something, don't apologize for it, uh, assuming, you know, it's, there's not ambig ambiguity. But if the Bible doesn't speak directly to something, you can say, I have an opinion. Heck, I'm okay with that. Share, me, share your opinion. Just don't tell me this is what Scripture says when it is clear that you are skirting so many verses and so much of stuff that I don't think is ambiguous. So, and, and your second point, 
yes, there's a lot of junk out there. I call it a circus in my in that book. And it does become um, a circus yes. very, I said, I very said, quickly. Dealing, yeah. Dealing with demons should be a systematic mop-up. Christians have been delegated authority that is greater than theirs. If you're a parent who allows a four or five-year-old to control the whole house and screaming and yelling and tantrums, you've lost before you've even started. I go, when you have delegated authority, that's as a parent as a Christian, you don't have to scream and yell to demonstrate it. If you start screaming and yelling, what it demonstrates to me is you really don't know very much about your delegated authority. So are there books out there that I don't want to read? I don't even encourage people to read some of them because I've read enough of it to go, I'm sorry, but all this does is reinforce a stereotype of demons win, Christians lose, and the Christian involved with this is a whack job that, uh, you know, they drink strychnine, they play games with rattlesnakes, they play banjos, they smoke straw pipes, you know, kind of thing. And because no one's sophisticated or really who, who reads John Gill or B.B. Warfield or, you know, whoever their hero is, they, they, I, I go, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. That's called a straw man. It's not fair doing what you're, what you're doing. So if somebody says to me, why do I want to approach things? Why do I lay down ground rules? I, I can tell you that I have had pastors and missionaries um, around the globe, uh, around the globe, that have said to me, one of the single most helpful things I got out of your book, as a Christian who has worked with this before, was the ground rules that you lay down. And I have said the ground rules really are more for the benefit of the demon than the person. I mean, it benefits the person. But what the ground rules are saying is, our delegated authority as Christians is greater than yours, so this is what you're going to do. And what I have said is I take, I, I say I take a box, the room represents a box, and I say we're just going to move it in until that box is about this big, and it says to the demon, uh, you will respond to challenges, commands given to you, and then you're going to leave. That's it. Demons are used to being in control of conversations and situations, even with Christians. Demons mock most Christians because they know that most Christians are afraid of them. I've had pastors say the best way to deal with demons is to get away from them and run. I've don't said, talk yeah. about them. Oh, yeah. You know, don't. Yeah. We, <laughs> that's, that's the posture, yeah. Oh, yeah. Isn't it interesting? James 4 says, okay, stay tight. You know, I resolutely oppose you. I resist you. I stand against you. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Peter in first chapter in chapter five of first Peter, resist the devil firmly in your faith, and he will flee from you. Which part of telling Christians to run from it and the New Testament telling Christians to resist, which means it's a fight, don't don't bend run from it, don't put up with it. Who is the one who is trying to do what the New Testament says? The one who's running because it scares me? First John 4 says, perfect love casts out fear, and you're being controlled by fear. Running, where are you told to run from a loser? You're not. Paul says in First Corinthians, in, in Ephesians 6, that same uh, chapter, he's the same, same basic word, saying, you know, doing everything, stand, in verse 13. It doesn't say run. So when somebody, when somebody says, you know, the, the best way to deal with it is to ignore it, I go, Swindoll said that fighters, I, I, I laughed at this. They're going to be called canvas back jackets. If you're a boxer and you don't know how your opponent works, you're going to get knocked out and you're going to be on your back looking up in the twilight as your guy stands over you because you never figured out how they fight. 
He says, athletes have figured out, it helps to figure out how your opponent works. The New Testament says we need to learn how to recognize and respond to demons. Why is it more virtuous to say, well, I am more virtuous and mature because I ignore it and I run from it. I go, in a boxing ring, you would lose. On a football field, you would lose. And yet, you go ahead and tell people that, that that's a virtuous way to go at it. No, it's not. What do I not want? I don't want where I'm a Christian. I represent cliches, but I clearly don't know what I'm talking about. I turn it into a circus because I guess I'll try something I heard on TV. That gets blown up and doesn't work. And now what you have uh, is, is Christians going, I guess I should be afraid of this because no matter what these guys do, it just gets loud and ugly. The, ground well, the, the, the circus atmosphere, though, oh, yeah. when the, the, the it, it really the gives deliverance a bad name. Absolutely. That's immediately what people think I'm talking about. Absolutely. See, what the ground rules say, and I, I started to say this earlier before I took off on a rabbit trail, which I never do, right? But what I started to say is the ground rules say that this is going to be something done in a fashion that is a systematic mop-up. Here is what you're going to do if you're there, assuming they're over there, and you're going to leave. The good guys win, the bad guys lose, and the Christian learns, I do not have to put up with this, do I? And the constant mental taunting about your prayers bounce off the ceiling, or you're ugly and everybody hates you, or why do you read your Bible? You're too dumb to get anything out of it. Or you've, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, when I don't even know what that means, but I keep hearing it in my head. Or you've committed an unforgivable sin and God has cut you off. And the, I don't have to put up with that. Instead, I realize losers take their shots. Chris, I have told so many people, demons are like bullies. Yes. As long as you give in to whatever their demand is, you are guaranteeing they're going to continue to bother you. If you are at school and a kid walks up and says, I want your lunch money, and you give him your lunch money, you're going to, they're going to be eating free the rest of the year on you because they know you're afraid of them. If the bully walks up and says, I want your lunch money, and I make a fist and say, you touch the lunch money, I'm going to knock your teeth out. Most bullies will say, I don't have time for you. I'm going to go find somebody else. I'll give you another little example I use in the book because it was so real to me. I threw papers as a little boy from the time I was fifth or sixth grade to all, all the way into my high school years. And I was scared to death of the dogs because the people would leave their dogs out on the lawn and they would chase me. And I mean, I was a martial artist. I was not afraid at all about fighting. I played, I, I, I lettered in four sports. You can't even do that anymore. But back in the olden days, you didn't have to declare one sport. I was very involved in athletics. But when, when those big dogs would come chasing me on my bicycle, man, I would take off down the street. And I had one of my brothers helping me on a Sunday morning, one Sunday. I don't know what had happened. And a big old German shepherd that was always at the end of, of one of the houses, you know, their driveway, and it would always be there to greet me because it took delight in chasing me. I started to take off. My brother said, what are you doing? Why do you run from that? I said, are you kidding? You see the teeth on that thing? And he said, give me a couple of papers. And this thing is snarling, you know, snapping. My, my brother rode right at that dog and started yelling at that dog, and he started throwing the newspapers at it, and that dog ducked its tail, and it went back down to the end of the driveway. And he basically said, that dog needs to understand that you're the baddest dog on the block, and you're not afraid of that dog. You'll go after that dog. And he said, give it a try. So as I'm throwing my papers, instead of running from the dogs, I would turn on them. I would ride my bike at them. I would throw a few things at them. And you know what? My last several years throwing papers, I didn't have a dog 
coming out to even come out and see it would lift up its head. It would see it's me and it would drop its head. And I say, just like demons, when you run from them, you encourage them to keep chasing you because they know you're afraid of them. When you say my boss is better than your boss, my boss has given me higher delegated authority than you. And I'm not putting up with your nonsense. Now, instead of you being fun to talk, now you become a problem because you've learned to fight back. So when, when say, why should it be screaming and yelling as if there are two equals and we're trying to see who's the better ping pong player? No, my God's a better ping pong player. And yet how many times I've seen Christians say, well, I kind of see myself as the ball and God swats me on one side and the devil swats me on the other side. And I don't know what to do except just hope, you know, that God's a better ping pong player and I won't get swatted too hard. I'm saying, no, you have gone passive. You're acting as though you have nothing to do in this battle. In Christ, you're on the side that wins. I wonder if Paul had part of that in mind when he says four different times in New Testament, walk worthy of your calling. You're, you, weren't, you weren't delegated authority to run. That doesn't deal just with demons. I'm not suggesting that. But why would I assume it doesn't include dealing with demons? So, yeah, the ground rules say to the demon, this is the way it's going to go. Chris, I have very genuinely and truthfully and literally had demons say to me after we lay down ground rules, just get it over with. Now, when I started this in 82, I can remember demons snapping about who are you to tell us to do anything and by what authority you'd command us to do anything. You're an idiot. We run the world. Very arrogant like that. Now I'll lay down ground rules and say battles on. I've had them say to me, don't be cruel. Just get it done. That's why I say anyone that allows this thing to be a circus, and too many of the books do, too many of the books do, I'll say either you don't know, it doesn't have to be a circus, and you're doing that just kind of naively, or you want the circus because somehow if you come out victorious after it's the circus, then you look like, man, look at the battle he went through, but he's still standing why, why he's bleeding and he's all cut up, but look, our guy won. Let's quick, let's get him to the hospital and get him sewed back up because he was courageous. I'm going, no, we're not the ones that are supposed to take the shots. We're supposed to be the ones that give the shots. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's good. And I, I want to encourage people to go check it out, Spiritual Warfare by Dr. Carl Payne. Um, a lot of questions coming in about resourcing you. So, um, I want to encourage people get the book, read the book. It's been a very valuable um, resource that I've recommended to many, many people over the years. Some of them are on this stream right now and have um, experienced freedom in their lives as a result of reading the book. There's a great um, just step-by-step -step prayer in there. And so, you know, I want to encourage you to read the book. Please don't inundate Dr. Payne with a bunch of emails. Um, or, or don't send me emails. I'm just going to refer you to the book and asking the Lord to get you on your own journey of freedom. I think that um, there's a lot of wisdom here, but he'll give you some, some things to think about, some scriptures, and really understanding the tactics. That's what I want you to understand his words of wisdom about you have to know how the enemy fights. Otherwise you're going to get beat up. And if you're in a boxing match, um, you know, it's, it's, you, you got to know the moves that your that your enemy's going to make understanding 
that component for me was such a game changer because I had always heard these cliches of like, you know, every day is a battle and it's all spiritual warfare, but I never knew what the battle plan was. Like, what does it even look like? How, how does spiritual warfare show up in my everyday life? Uh, this book really helped open, open up that conversation for me and helping me understand what it looks like in my day-to-day life and help me know how to fight back. So thank you so much, Dr. Payne, for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Such an honor to talk to you because what people probably don't know is not many people labor in this ministry for decades. It's a tough ministry, but the, but your longevity is a, is a real testimony um, to, to what you've done. So thank you for laboring for the body of Christ. Let let me give you, let me give you a closing thought that hopefully can make some sense. I know it'll make sense for you. uh, Hopefully for some of your listeners. Uh, I have been asked repeatedly. One of the questions I get conferences at church, you you know, is why me when I love God? I mean, how come demons wouldn't be bothering the gutter drunks and the, and the, the drug addicts and all the rest of it. I mean, that, that would make sense to me. I love God. And I have said, if you're a very smart soldier, you're going to save your ammunition for the people that can hurt you the most. And if someone is already involved with a drug addict, an alcoholic, uh, I am mentally just so shut down that I have a hard time, you know, thinking, why should I spend a lot of time shooting arrows at people that I feel like I'm already controlling? The ones that I'm going to save my ammo for are the ones who I view as an enemy. And that's the ones who are saying, you don't have to put up with this because you're on the, we win because Christ won. That's the bottom line. Those are the ones I better be shooting at. So rather than someone saying, well, if you're getting shot at with those fire arrows, what's the secret sin in your life? You must be doing something wrong. Maybe, maybe the reason you're getting shot at with those arrows is because you're actually standing for Christ and someone is saying, as long as you're paddling around out in the ocean and not bothering anybody but a seagull once in a while, why should I wake you up? But if you're a Christian that's in the battle, because this isn't my home, what can I do to discourage you? I wanted to keep you out of heaven, but you met Jesus. He's my enemy, and you're now involved with Jesus. Well, my plan B is, can I discourage you and distract you enough that you don't talk about Jesus and you don't live for Jesus? So I I just end it with saying my subjective experience has been that oftentimes people that catch the most heat are the people who had such a desire to walk with God that the other side said, let's tune them up a little bit. And then all of a sudden they're feeling like I don't do anything right. And it's like, that's right. So just shut up. Can't keep you out of heaven, but I'll discourage you from opening your mouth. That doesn't have to come from someone insincere. Oftentimes it comes from someone who is dejected because they feel like I I, I fail God. He must be so disappointed. Most marginal Christians and non-Christians do not worry about how did I fail God? They're a bull in the China closet. They don't care. Oftentimes it's the ones very serious that draw the arrows, which that's the ones that a smart enemy would tee off on. Boy, that's some wisdom. I've definitely seen that in my own ministry in in this area. And I don't think I've mentioned this before, but I actually, after reading this book and going through my experience, 
I went back, restudied the gospels, reread them to really, because quite frankly, my healing didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to my theology. I didn't have a box to put that in. Just as Dr. Payne was saying at the top of his own experience of how he started going into deliverance ministry. And that put me on a trajectory uh, as a result of reading this book of being able to reach out and help others. And I've been involved in one way or another with about a hundred people and praying for them for deliverance. And, um, it was a wonderful season of my life. Um, and I learned a lot. And what I learned in one of the things I learned in that experience is people like Dr. Payne are rare who have longevity in it and they don't give into the circus. <laughs> and it's it, what he's saying is very, very legit. And I really appreciate the wisdom. He doesn't do a lot of media appearances, but I just want to say thank you once again, Dr. Payne, for coming on and, and talking with us. And this is a, a little bit of a dream come true to be able to share um, share you with others. So thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a privilege, Krista. God bless you. And God thank bless you, you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. So let us take a few more questions. Um, and um, I think that there was, let's see. There was a question. Let's see. I don't know what stream it came in on. Um, okay. Um, Bob, I'm going to go over to Facebook first. There's a question about can demons live in a house or is that something where it just lives or affects people? Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this, but I will tell you this. I have had some situations with people that I've worked with when I was in deliverance ministry, where they sometimes will have objects, especially from objects from other countries that maybe they brought in that had some kind of spiritual activity attached to them, especially if you have um, occultic things, religious objects like Ouija boards, tarot cards, voodoo dolls, um, things that are used by shamans, um, even, um, and a lot of people don't know this, but um, uh, dream catchers are part of of Native American um, religious ceremonies. So sometimes if you have these like religious objects in your house, um, demons can kind of see that as a permission and they travel with those objects. And I have seen several situations where if you remove those objects from your house, sometimes things can get better. Um, but that's, that's an opinion. Um, and that may not always be true. Okay. I think that was all the questions on Facebook. Let me do one or two from YouTube and then we will sign off. Um, let's see. I, Susanna, I love your comment. I appreciate the possible explanation of when I've asked the why me question. I think that Dr. Payne's answer to that is just so insightful um, because, and I have found that to be true too, with many of the people that I've had the privilege of praying for 
in deliverance ministry. Many of them had wonderful ministries or they had a heart for ministry. And sometimes the ministries even got short-circuited because they were so inundated with the condemning thoughts by the enemy. And once they got free from that, they were actually able to go and do new ministries that where there had been hindrances before. So if the enemy sees you as a threat, it's, it's, it's going to be a target. And so it's that his answer to that just made perfect sense to me. Okay. I think that's all the questions I'm going to address for now. And again, I want to refer you to Dr. Payne's book, spiritual warfare. You can check that out. And I just want to end the stream tonight. I felt like the Lord was putting it on my heart um, to just encourage all of you in case there's any of you that have not yet um, met the real Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you tuned into this tonight because you were curious about demonic issues. Maybe um, you have dabbled in occultic practices or new age practices. Maybe you're interested in the spirit realm. And I just want to speak to you directly tonight. If you have not yet made a decision to believe in Jesus, to follow him as a disciple and to believe in his death, life, death, burial, and resurrection, that Jesus died in your place, that even though you disobeyed the holy commands of the creator, even though you have lived your whole life as the boss of your life, Jesus came in your place and he died in your place and he took the punishment, he took those sins on himself. And because of that, there is the possibility of having restored fellowship with the creator of the universe. And I want to encourage you that if you have never trusted in the death of Jesus on your behalf, that this is an opportunity to do that, that I want you to know tonight that Jesus is the one who has crushed the enemy and his power. Dr. Payne was talking earlier tonight that, that Christians have delegated power and authority. And what that means is that at the cross, it says in the book of Colossians that he laid the enemy out to be a public spectacle, that he, he kind of had a shame parade for the enemy to show that Jesus had conquered Satan, death and sin. And so even though we are still in these bodies and one day I will die, the great hope of Christianity is that when I put my faith and confidence in Jesus, that he took my place, he took my punishment, that when I die, one day I will rise again and that I will live forever in the presence of God. Now, I know that many people who want to engage in the occult and, and the new age and shamanism, what they're really longing for is that connection with sometimes they want to call it the universe or cosmic force, but the inside, what they're really longing for is to have that connection with the creator 
And I want to tell you right now that Jesus Christ is the only path to get you to that connection to the creator that you you're actually longing for. And so if you are somebody who is curious about spiritual things, that's a good thing. But I want to tell you that dabbling in the spirit realm can be harmful to you. You heard many of those things tonight on this stream. And I want to tell you unequivocally that if you will turn away from your sins, that's what Christians call repentance. It means to change your mind where you now are turning away from your sin and you're recognizing this is not how God wants me to live. This is not how I was created to live. And you place your confidence in Jesus's work on the cross to take your punishment on your behalf. He will forgive your sins. He will cleanse your soul and you will have a new life in him. And that is available to you right now. And you can just talk to God just as you would talk to a friend and just open up your heart to him and say, I'm a sinner. I know that I have broken your laws. I know that I've offended you, but I want to come into a relationship with you. I want to become truly your child. I realize that I have, I have been the boss of my life, but God, I want to make you the boss of my life. And I want to follow in your ways. I want to be your follower. That's available to you right now. And I just want to invite you to do that. And if you pray to God and you pray that prayer and you reach out to him, please write to me. Let me know that you did that. I would love to hear from you and I will pray for you people on this stream. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you so much. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more Theology Fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.